This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. I think all EDS patients have pain, but um, at times this pain will will go up to a point where they become non-functional and Mm -hmm. that's when they start seeking treatments. But they have pain all the time. It's just that they've grown to accepting it as, you know, hey, this is normal. back to the Bendy Bodies podcast, bringing you state-of-the-art information to optimize your health. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, a former professional ballet and Broadway dancer who struggled for years with hypermobility-related problems. Now, I train dancers to ensure the next generation of hypermobile artists are better equipped to work to their fullest potential. I am Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. I started Bendy Bodies to provide accessible information for everyone on the hypermobility spectrum. Combining my medical education and personal experiences enables me to treat and coach patients and clients to optimize their quality of life. This information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Today, we wanted to talk about the problems that can occur in the head and spine and neck and chest, which sounds like we're just kind of throwing a dart at different parts of the body, but they all are kind of connected. And this series that we're doing with Dr. Chopra is we're really trying to break it down into parts of the body rather than specialists, because there's so much overlap between issues within one certain area of the body that it's, they're very difficult to parse apart on their own. So we thought this would be a helpful way to look at it. So when we're looking at the, the head, the spine, the neck, the chest, Dr. Chopra, why are these topics so important for uh, when we're talking about EDS? I call this connecting the dots, Jennifer, in, in the sense that you have to look at the human body as a whole. And, you know, I can't, I can't have a patient come into my office with one complaint and then not related to other things that are causing it. And so it's important to understand that. And for just for just to make sure that we don't miss anything the way I like to do it. And I think the way most doctors do is they start from the head and then they walk all the way down to the toes. That's how we teach our medical students. We'll say, look, there are two ways to go about it. One is you can go physically from head to toe thinking of all the causes of the condition, possible causes, and then you rule them out, or you can go by systems. And I've, over the years, I've found that going anatomically from the head down to the toes is the best approach. Uh, and, and, and patients understand that easily. Hopefully I didn't miss any organ when I, when I, by the time I finished, I kind of jumped out of my usual norm of going from head to toe uh, was when we had our first podcast on abdominal pain, because I was just, well, for one, I was hoping it would be just one abdominal pain podcast, but here's Dr. Bluestein and Jennifer Milner who grabbed onto me onto the rest of the <laughs> which, which is fine because I, I, want, I want people to understand on their own and not be solely dependent on doctors to uh, diagnose them or at least know what they have and understand that it's, you know, is it a serious thing or is it not a serious thing? You know, for example, brain fog. It can be a little scary and I just, you know, once they understand why they have brain fog, it's a, it's a little reassuring. So that's why we are going into this, um, going from head to toe. And on this podcast, we'll, we'll go from, we'll go to the, we'll go, go from head to the neck, uh, including the neck and possibly even the, even the thoracic spine. Yeah, that sounds great. So how about we dig in? So I'm going to start with headaches. Headaches are really very common and and, and, you know, again, it's common in, in the non-EDS population as well as the EDS population. Uh, so I've sort of teased out uh, what's more common in the EDS population, and it you know, turned out to be about 25 different reasons for having headaches. 
And then I teased out the very, very rare ones down to the more common reasons. And some of them, I'm going to list them. And then later on, I'm going to discuss all of them. But the common causes of headaches is, of course, the first one is migraines. Uh, again, I don't know if there's any relationship between migraines and EDS, uh, but we do see a lot of migraines. Um, the second one is KRE malformation. Then we look at cervicogenic headaches, headaches from what are called craniofacial pain or TMJ, or temporomandibular joint dysfunction, headaches from POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, headaches caused by tethered cord syndrome. And then you have the two uh, culprits, high pressure, because high pressure headaches, also known as intracranial hypertension. And then you have the low pressure headaches, usually because of spontaneous CSF leak. And then you also get headaches from craniocervical instability. And as we go along, I'll, I'll discuss the symptoms um, of each one. And I cannot go into the treatment in depth uh, on these because a lot of that is based on patient's presentation. So going to the first symptom is where patients complain of pain in the whole head and they have double vision and they also feel a throbbing in their ears and their headache increases when they laugh or cough. So just to remind you again, this is really important. So they may be having a headache and if they laugh or cough or sneeze, their headache increases significantly and then it drops down to a very baseline severe headache. They also have this pulsing ringing in their ears and they not always, but sometimes they may have a double vision. These are symptoms of increased pressure inside the head. Now, the, the thing with the head is that it's a closed structure. It's not, it's a box, it's a round box and it's closed, it doesn't expand. And so there's no, if the pressure changes either way, whether it increases or uh, drops down, it becomes very symptomatic. So raised pressure inside the head can be from many different reasons. And I told you the symptoms, the big one being the headache increases with coughing or sneezing. And also the headache feels different. It feels like it's the head is going to explode from inside. It literally, it's a very, it feels like there's an intense pressure inside the head. Now, among the common reasons for having headaches, uh, this kind of a headache from increased intracranial pressure is narrowing of a blood vessel inside the brain. It's called venous sinus stenosis. And usually it's the transverse venous stenosis. So what it means is that one of the veins is narrowed. The theory behind that is why should you have a headache from a narrowing of a, of a blood vessel inside the head is that um, the amount of blood that goes inside the head should be exactly the same that comes out. So what goes in uh, has to come out. But if there is a difference, if there's plenty of blood going inside the head, but not the same amount coming out, that adds to an increased pressure. And that can be from a narrowing of a blood vessel. The second reason is from a carry malformation. And we'll discuss that when we get to carry malformation. Um, how do you diagnose this? Um, let me tell you how you don't diagnose this, and that is a spinal tap. Absolutely do not get a spinal tap, and I'll explain to you why. The fluid inside the head is produced inside the head. It's called CSF. This CSF pressure inside, the CSF as it's produced inside the brain, then flows out of the skull and down into the spine. And it goes all the way down to the spine and then goes back up into the skull. And so it keeps circulating within a closed system. Now, a spinal tap is a, is a lumbar puncture. They stick a needle into your back and, um, and then they look at the, what's called the opening pressure. Um, and then with that, they decide whether the pressure inside the head is high or not. There are two problems with that. One of them is that, what if there is an obstruction of fluid at the level of the neck, for example, in carry malformation? The pressure inside the head is very high, 
but that high pressure is not transmitted down to the spine. So if you do a spinal tap in these patients or a lumbar puncture, the pressure is going to show up as being normal. So the second problem issue with that is that patients with EDS, the covering, the bag that holds this fluid is very elastic. So it's like measuring pressure inside a 10 watt balloon. And you're not going to get the right pressure because it is the covering in which the fluid floats stays in is very thin and expensile. So, which is called the dura matter. The dura matter is very thin, and it's you know, you're not going to get a good pressure reading on that. The third, of course, reason is that you do a spinal tap, the hole does not close up, and you wind up with what's called a postdural puncture headache, which is even worse than the regular headache. But that's besides the point. The point is that the pressure inside the head may not match the pressure in the spine. So how do you solve this problem? The best way to solve this problem is to measure the pressure inside the head. And that's done by a very, very small, it's a, it's a kind of a procedure called uh, uh, putting in a subarachnoid bolt. So it sounds gruesome. It's not really a bolt, but it's a little transducer that measures pressure. So the surgeon will go in there and make a teeny tiny hole and puts, puts it in there. And then that goes to a computer which records it continuously. The patient stays in the ICU overnight and they look at the pressure readings over a period of time inside the skull. And that is a far more accurate way for testing pressures inside the head. So doing a spinal tap, going back to the diagnosis of uh, why somebody would have a high pressure in their head, a spinal tap is a bad idea, or I should say not a good idea. You can do a, what's called an MR venography. So they shoot some dye into your vein and then they look at it, uh, look at the map of, the, of this dye in the brain and see if there's any narrowing there, which I think this is a really safe technique and a very valuable technique. Um, if you suspect that this is because of Chiari malformation, then you can get an upright MRI. Now, I've had neurologists say, well, this cannot be high pressure inside the head because there are no eye changes. If the pressure inside the head stays very high for a long time, then you start to see eye changes, okay? Obviously, because everything is under high pressure. You don't want to wait for that. You do not want to wait for eye changes. That's a complication. You don't want to wait for that. You, you want to, you don't want, you want to fix this before any eye changes happen. So it's not a good idea to wait uh, for your, a change in your eyes before you go in for, a, for looking for a high pressure inside the head. How do you treat this? So in medicine, there is only one rule. You treat the cause of the problem. That's the only rule. Everything else is band-aid. So you look for um, if there's a high pressure in the head and if it's because of a, of a narrowing of a blood vessel, then they sneak a little stent into that and that opens up the blood vessel. It's, it's not, they don't open up the skull, they do it through the arm or through the leg and get into the brain and then they place a little stent. And if it's carry malformation, then of course they do a decompression surgery. In some cases, we, you never find the cause of high pressure, which is called idiopathic. So you don't ever know why, why the pressure is high in these patients, but they have a high pressure. In that case, uh, they do what is called a shunt. So they put a little thing on the head through the skull and that then drains the fluid, the CSF, and it goes through a little tube um, hidden under your skin and into your belly and it keeps draining from there. And so it lo lowers the pressure um, inside the head. And that, and they can actually, it's, it's, believe it or not, that's computer driven and they can actually uh, use a little uh, remote to control the amount of pressure being, being lowered. They don't want it to be lowered too much uh, so they can do that. Um, so these are the reasons why patients with intracranial, where patients with EDS can have headaches from raised intracranial pressure. Just to recap, the most common cause is there's a narrowing of a blood vessel or carrying malformation. Doing a spinal tap is a, tap is a bad idea. 
MR venography is good, but and if you have symptoms of Chiari malformation, which we will discuss a little later, treating Chiari malformation makes makes a big difference. I, I forgot to mention that there is a pill that you can take, but from practical experience, I, I really haven't found a pill to be very useful. It does help in the initial stages, and then it doesn't really help. But Again, just be careful because you don't want this the pressure inside the head to be too high. What's really interesting to me about this conversation is that you started out saying there's about 25 different causes of headaches and you sort of narrowed those down. And I think I think the average person would say they think there's like three types of headaches. There's a sinus headache, there's a, a tension headache, and there's migraines, right? And that's just kind of what we've heard from over-the-counter drugs and here are these three types of headaches. So just hearing that there are so many different types and they can be caused by so many different things has to be comforting because a lot of times we go to the doctor and we're like, we have a headache. And they're like, is it like this or like this? Like, does it go over the head or the side of the head? And they go, okay, well then it's this. And and I, I know some people with uh, EDS with chronic headaches that it's pretty much daily. And being told you're not crazy, there are a bunch of different things it could be. Let's dive a little deeper and see what the cause could be. As you said, everything else is a band-aid. So trying to get to the cause of it rather than just, um, you know, have you tried some over-the-counter ibuprofen <laughs> is, is hugely comforting. So that's that's really interesting to hear. Thank you for that. Actually, um, you said that, you know, most people are told there are three types of headaches. I can shorten that down to two types of headaches. <laughs> Either your headache is from inside your head or it's from outside your head. <laughs> And that's important because if it's inside your head, it's most likely a migraine. Mm -hmm. And if it's a migraine, the treatment is completely different. And if it's from outside the head, of course, then there are other reasons. Mm -hmm. But in any case, moving on to headaches, this is so that our listeners don't get a headache from listening to me. <laughs> Before you move on to the next category, I was curious about Eagle syndrome. And would that be included in that first section? Yes, ma'am. Eagle syndrome is right inside this. Okay, great. <laughs> There are a couple of other uh, reasons for headaches, which I forgot to include in my list. Uh, TMJ, temporomandibular joint, can cause headaches. Um, and sinuses, sinus headaches, frontal sinus, that's a, a headache in your forehead, is also very common. And the reason for that is mast cell activation syndrome. So when we get to the mast cell activation syndrome in the 300th episode of our podcast, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that. Um, so one of the headaches is, uh, that I always ask patients is, does your headache get worse when you stand? And a lot of them will say yes. But then the critical question is, when you lie down, does it get better? And you know they'll think about it and then they'll say yes. And that's when I ask them, does it really just, does it only get a little better or does it go away? And there's a big difference between that. If it go, So we're gonna talk about the one that goes away. So the minute they lie down, it goes away. And then the minute they stand up, it comes back. These are symptoms of low pressure headache. So the pressure inside the head is now low. And when it's low, um, it sort of, it, um, I'm trying to give you a picture. What happens is the brain kind of settles down and the term for that is boggy brain. <clears throat> That's what they look for actually in MRIs um, of the head in these cases. And they look for what's called a boggy brain, which sounds a little bit gruesome, but it's actually the brain literally sort of falls down because pressure is not enough to hold it up. It's a very intense headache um, when they stand up. And, and the best part is it resolves fully when they lie flat. This is often because of, of cerebrus, this, the fluid inside the head being, leaking out for whatever reason, it leaks out. Um, and there are several reasons why it would leak out. One of the reasons why it would leak out is if somebody went in there and did a spinal tap or, an, or what's called a, they, they did a spinal tap to look for a high pressure headache. And now you have a leak, which adds on to your headache that you already had. So what's happening in these cases is that there's a hole in the, in that, 
remember the dura matter, the covering around which uh, in which the bag in which the fluid is held, there's a there's a leak in there and it's slowly starting to leak out. And so when you stand, it leaks out more. When you lie down, it doesn't leak as much. The treatment for this is uh, fairly simple. They do what is called an epidural blood patch, or they might do an epidural fibrin, uh, which kind of it's basically just glue that closes up the hole. If it is because of surgery, like somebody's had spinal surgery for whatever reason, and they wind up with a postural puncture headache or a low pressure headache, and none of these methods are working, um, then they go in there and do a surgical repair. But things that you can do at home are you can. Uh, didn't we talk about hacks in our last episode? Yes, and people so love them. People we're going to have hacks, the hacks. So. so this is a hack. <laughs> Give us a hack. So hack the alert. hack for this is that you drink a boatload of coffee, caffeine. That helps. Uh, if you can't drink a boatload of caffeine, then you can get um, caffeine tablets. Um, the most common one being Excedrin migraine, and that has a lot of caffeine in it, and that might help. The other one is to wear a corset around your belly. So that sort of puts a pressure uh, on the fluid. It doesn't, it's not like it stops a leak, but what it does is it increases the pressure inside the CSF. So you can do that. And um, they do say drink a lot of fluids, but I don't think that really works because the headache is so intense that it causes nausea and that naturally doesn't work. But well, we have our hacks. We well, and, and this is this is something that you've mentioned um, in the abdominal pain or it sort of links to something with that. Because in the abdominal pain, you talked about how with the connective tissue, things can start to just fall into gravity. And if they shift down just a little bit, it can cause significant issues. And it's it's replaying itself in another part of the body here as well. You're talking about boggy brain, right? That if things just settle a little bit, they can cause significant issues. And so I think it's yet another example of how loose connective tissue um, or different connective tissue uh, is not just about the joints and that it has such ramifications as you were saying, the dura mater is so thin. And if there's low pressure for whatever reason, there's going to be issues as we've seen with some pretty stellar headaches. So it's it's really not just about the joints. It affects absolutely every single part of the body. Exactly. And, um, but I'm so excited that we got our two hacks in. <laughs> and I have a question before you, before you move on, and maybe you're already going to get to this about do if, if these ever spontaneously close, if you have a CSF leak, is there a chance that it would spontaneously close then? Dr. Blustein, I know you've seen lots of CSF leak headaches and it does spontaneously close in, in some patients but not in EDS. Mm. These, they, they, they don't let go easily. Um, I, there's one small point I wanted to bring about, which is an odd phenomenon where a person can have a high pressure headache and a low pressure headache. The, the thing is that when the pressure inside, in these patients, when the pressure inside the brain starts to increase so much, then there, a leak develops in, in any part of the dura mater. It can happen in the spine, it can happen in the brain there's a leak that develops. And what happens is CSF starts to leak out from there and that lowers the pressure. So it's kind of a self-sustaining mechanism where the pressure goes up, a leak develops and the pressure now drops down to normal. Um, sometimes patients will complain of a very clear, clear fluid draining from their nose. Up in the nose, there's a bone, which, which kind of there's a leak can develop there. Um, it, this, this fluid is a very different fluid. It's, it's very thin like literally like water, even thinner than water. It has a slightly salty taste. Um, it's different from boogers. It's, <laughs> everybody recognizes boogers, but this is different. And patients will tell you that is that, oh, this is, this, this, it's like water dripping down a faucet. And then it goes away, it stops. And then it comes back again. 
Um, and that fluid can be tested for CSF. Uh, there's a test called the beta transferrin test. Um, you just, you know, you bend down, you let some of it drip into a little bottle and you send it off to the lab and they can do a beta transferrin test. So just because someone has a high pressure headache uh, or symptoms of low pressure headache, you really have to look for like, is this, who's the, who's the culprit here? Is, does this patient really have a high pressure headache, which, which is ending up in a low pressure headache? So the next one I want to talk to you about was carry malformation. So in this case, uh, again, the headache gets worse when they cough or sneeze. Remember we, how I mentioned in the raised intracranial pressure headaches, that the headache increases when they cough or sneeze uh, in carry. And one of the reasons was carry malformation. So here we are, the headache increases when they cough or sneeze. They have tingling in their hands and feet. Uh, difficulty swallowing. And this is just a basic head-related stuff. And I'll get into a lot more about the symptoms of other symptoms of carry malformation. So for those who have not Googled it yet, this is a little uh, education on what carry malformation is. Uh, your brain lives inside a skull uh, and under the, at the bottom of the skull is a hole. And through that hole, uh, the brain comes out. Um, and it's at this point, it is now called spinal cord. And the part that's at the hole is called the brain stem. So the brain, so the brainstem then is at the hole, and then it comes out through the hole, and that becomes a spinal cord. Now this hole is really important because in carry malformation, for whatever reason, mostly because the skull is a little deformed, um, you can't see it. We don't exactly know why people have carry malformation, but the brain starts to push down, and it pushes down through the hole. And what happens is when it pushes down, the brainstem, which I just told you was at the at the beginning of the hole, plugs that hole. And along with that, there is an organ at the back of her head called the cerebellum that also gets pushed down and that also gets squeezed. So in carry malformation, you not only do you have the brainstem being uh, plugging the hole, the cerebellum also plugs the hole. And once the hole gets plugged, then the pressure, now the CSF cannot leave the brain, uh, cannot leave the skull and go into the spine. So it starts to collect inside the head and the pressure inside the head starts to increase. And this is the point I was trying to make before was that if you do a spinal tap in this patient, it will be normal. But when you do a bolt in these patients, it's gonna show us a high pressure. But we, we need, need to know what happens when the brainstem is compressed and when the, when the cerebellum is compressed. So these patients uh, obviously present with neck pain, but one of the most important things is they present with balance problems. The cerebellum is responsible for balance. So these patients have really poor balance. They often do complain of a pressure headache in the back of the head, um, it's associated with POTS-like symptoms. So when we get to POTS, um, there are three reasons for patients to, patients having POTS. Um, one of them is, of course, blood pooling down their legs. The second reason is your, your brainstem being compressed, which causes symptoms of POTS. And the third is an autoimmune dysfunction. So this is one of the reasons why they have POTS. And you know, in, in my office, I have to differentiate because if they have POTS because of their brainstem being compressed, then no amount of salt or fluid is going to fix it. You've got to fix the carry malformation. They do have difficulty swallowing. Um, and, and the way to ask patients is, you know, if you have difficulty swallowing is, does it feel like your food is getting stuck in your throat? They have poor hand coordination. So these are some of the main symptoms of carry malformation. There are many other symptoms, but these are the symptoms. So pressure in the back of the head, balance problems, high pressure uh, headaches, uh, POTS-like symptoms, especially dizziness, difficulty swallowing. These are all symptoms of carrying malformation. Uh, for people who are um, looking at this and trying to diagnose it, I know that uh, carrying malformation um, is best diagnosed with an MRI, but it's a certain position of the MRI, right? Isn't it seated or am I thinking of something else? 
Oh, yes, that's an excellent point. I, I, I forgot to mention that. So the diagnosis um, is, so I, I have to back up a little bit. Um, one of the one of the things that one of the phenomenons that phenomena that happens in patients with EDS is um, the the head sits on the spine. It's balanced on the spine. The analogy is, um, and this is a true analogy, is that um, balancing a bowling ball. That's exactly how much the head weighs, about eleven pounds, same as a bowling ball, uh, balanced on on the end of a pin. So that's how delicately this part of the anatomy is, uh, how delicate that this part of the anatomy is, where the bowling ball is uh, balanced on the tip of a pin. Um, and this is all held down by ligaments. This is all tethered down by ligaments. And ligaments um, in me are, are strong. So when I sit, I'm not really using my muscles, I'm using my ligaments. But in, in, in EDS, what happens is because their ligaments are lax, the bowling ball or the head settles down. It descends a little bit. And that's called cranial settling. So as the, the skull settles down, it, it sort of presses on the, on the cervical spine. It presses on the neck, bones of the neck, the spine portion of the neck, it presses down. And when it presses down, uh, that's when you get a lot of the symptoms. <clears throat> this, you don't see this cranial settling when you're lying down. This cranial settling shows up only when you're upright. Hence, Getting an upright MRI in these patients is important because you want to see the cranial settling. You want to see uh, what happens when these patients sit up. So th the diagnosis depends a lot on, on upright MRIs. It, it may not show up on a supine MRI. Um, and so the centers, upright centers are not that common, but there are around the country, there are centers. Uh, it's kind of a sitting MRI. So you sit and then they um, take a picture. Yeah, that makes sense because that was also something we discussed, I think, Dr. Bluestein, as we when we talked about cervical instability and the importance of having the upright MRI for that. So again, makes sense if your if your ligaments don't do as good of a job supporting you against gravity, but having to fight gravity would be crucial for uh, for an MRI for people to have a true picture of what's going on. Right. And thank you for bringing that up because um I, I completely forgotten forgotten about that. So getting an upright MRI for the diagnosis of carry malformation is, is sort of critical. The treatment is, of course, surgical decompression. Uh, what they do is they widen the hole a little bit, and and so that's that's basically what they do. The next headache that I, the other type of headaches uh, that you get um, are from clenching your teeth a lot. So they do say temporomandibular joint dysfunction, um, but this is more of a habit. And this is I don't think this is very particular in, in patients with EDS. We do see it in our non-EDS patients also. You clench a lot, and clenching can be it's actually in some ways helpful. Like when you lift a heavy item, you you sort of clench your teeth and then you get that extra strength. And that is uh, a phenomenon, which I forget the name, uh, but anyway, so you clench your teeth, it gives you that extra strength. And it you know also when it hurts, when something hurts, then you clench your teeth. And so there's a lot of clenching going on and the clenching is done predominantly by the, by the chewing muscles that are called the masseter and the temporalis muscles. These muscles live, uh, the masseter muscle lives at the back of your jaw, just below the ear, you can feel it when you, if you clench your teeth, you'll feel it expand or contract. Uh, and then the temporalis muscle is on the side of the head. So these muscles get tired of constantly clenching and they start to hurt. And then that adds to a, another headache. The treatment for that, um, there are many ways to treat it from the simplest to the most complicated ones. And there are very few practitioners who actually know how to treat it. So <clears throat> a mouth guard is not a good option because you're still gonna be clenching on the, on the piece of plastic in your mouth. If anything, if the mouth guard is ill-fitting, then you're likely to clench even more. 
So we don't really recommend a mouth guard. Um, it does protect your teeth, but that's about it. What I like to do is I like to shoot some Botox into the masseter muscles and into the temporalis muscle. And a little bit of Botox goes a long way in these patients. And if you really want to get fancy, then there are what are called oral appliances that sort of when you clench, you're clenching on air rather on teeth. Mm. And I think um, Dr. Blustein, when we talked to Dr. Russick about uh, jaw issues, she she said that sometimes um, in her experience, people with hypermobility clench their jaws uh, out of proprioceptive issues, like just so their jaw mm -hmm. knows where they are in space um, and, and sort of the physical therapy work that could be done to, to kind of get out of that and, and relieve some, some chronic headaches. It was really fascinating to think about. Yeah, I actually, I, I started to chuckle when Dr. Chopra mentioned the jaw clenching because that has been a huge issue for me. My biggest problem over the past few years has been jaw pain, as Jennifer knows. So <laughs> talking and smiling and all that can be a problem. But yes, I, and, and my uh, oral surgeon that I go to who was a dentist and now she is a maxillofacial pain specialist has really tried to educate me about the clenching. And it's, I can't tell when I'm doing it. It's really hard. I don't, you know, but apparently when you clench, then you transmort, transmit forces into the jaw. And so we, we shouldn't be touching our teeth more than I forget the number that, that they've said. And maybe Ch Dr. Chopra knows, but, but yeah, the, this whole clenching thing, I think probably a lot of us do. And um, yeah, I think we're looking for stability and, and that proprioceptive input. Mm -hmm. So here we come to our hack section of the podcast. <laughs> Hey, you guys should have a drum roll, okay? So hacks for this. Um, one is that when you feel, so you firstly have this in your, take it out from your subconscious mind and put it into your conscious mind, which means you've got to always keep thinking about it, that I'm not going to clench. And if you do find yourself clenching, then open your mouth a little bit, sort of just like a bird, open your mouth a little bit. Um, or you can stick your tongue between your teeth mm -hmm. and that'll, and then in two minutes, it'll be gone. Then it'll be over. Sometimes I've noticed this when walking up the stairs and it hurts, your knee hurts or something, people will tend to clench. And then that's mm -hmm. when I tell them, start with opening your mouth a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think there should be a double drum, drum roll for this hack <laughs> is, <laughs> is um, you know how you, when you have to take a flight early in the morning, like at 5 a.m., and you set your alarm clock for 3 a.m. And then you you wake up exactly like 10 minutes to three, like before the alarm goes off. And that happens, at least with me, it happens a lot. Um, I wake up 10 minutes before the alarm goes off. And the reason for that is you've been thinking about it all day long. Uh, I got a flight in the morning at five o'clock. I really need to get up at three o'clock. And you're, you've been thinking about it all day long. So when you go to bed, thinking like, okay, I go to wake up at three o'clock. I've had my alarm set up. Okay. The brain beats the alarm clock by 10 minutes. And that's a very common phenomenon. It doesn't happen on a daily routine basis. Like if you have to wake up for work, it doesn't happen because you're not thinking about it. But when there's an, when there's an episode, so it happens with singular episodes where you are going with, there's something that you need to do important at four o'clock, you wake up 10 minutes before that. And so with this hack is that start thinking about okay, I, I, I should not clench when I sleep. I should not grind my teeth when I sleep. I should not clench. So I keep thinking about it. And eventually you'll stop clenching your teeth. And this has worked very well uh, in patients where you can, so they have to sort of have it in the, again, you drag it out of your subconscious mind and you bring it into your conscious mind. And, and then you bring it to the front of your conscious mind. Like this is the most important thing in your life is that you're not going to clench anymore. And so when you go to bed, especially think, think about it a few hours before you go to bed um, and you do stop clenching. And if you're thinking about it during the day, 
then again, if you clench, then you, 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 know, you open your mouth a little bit or you stick a tongue between your teeth. Hence the double hack. <laughs> those are those are excellent double hacks. What about medications like SSRIs? Can't that influence clenching also? I haven't heard of that. Um, mm. SSRIs in general don't help pain. Um, they do help with anxiety and depression. And if you know when you're anxious, we do tend to clench, and in some form it might help. But that is a whole different issue. Like if you have tremendous amounts of anxiety, which you know you need you need to be on an SSRI. But, so um, then, in that case, of course, it's, then you can go on to that. Yeah, I think there. I think from my from this doctor that I've seen, I think she was saying that there's some data showing that SSRIs actually can increase clenching. Oh, okay. I, I but of course, know. but of course, we don't want anyone to stop their medication based on what <laughs> I just said. Right. But you know, a lot of these things are kind of multifactorial, and mm-hmm. so, but but those are those are great hacks because anything that we can do with a uh, less risky intervention like that, right? There's no downside to right. bringing it into our consciousness. So that's a that, those are fabulous uh, hacks and double hacks. Listen, I I am a cheap guy. I like to do cheap <laughs> things. Okay. So dragging something out of your subconscious mind and bringing it into your conscious mind is extremely cheap. Yeah. And keeping your beak open, you know, when you think you're <laughs> going to be clenching, is pretty easy. It may look silly. You're walking around with your with your mouth open, but it's only for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about craniocervical instability, mm-hmm. otherwise in briefly known as CCI. Um, cranio is of course the head, and then the cervical, and then the cervical is the cervical part of the spine, the neck, and there's an instability there. This is fairly common in EDS, uh, and it's because each vertebra, the whole complex. Remember, I told you how how it's uh, it's the equivalent of a bowling ball balancing on the end of a pin. All of this is 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 marvels is a marvel of our, of anatomy where everything is so well balanced and held together that we can still walk around with a bowling ball on our spine and still turn around and look around and nothing falls off. But if something goes wrong in this intricate mechanism, that's when things, then everything falls apart. And the problem here is that the ligaments that hold the head and the spine together may become loose and lax. And when they become loose and lax, then you're depending solely on your muscles and muscles are not very good at working too hard. And at, at they, they let go after some time, and then that's when you get the instability. In, in terms of cranial CCI, cranial, there's, there's, a, there's a spectrum. So you can have severe instability, which means like you don't even want the patient to drive home um, and call the surgeon right away to like, all right, you can do some other stuff we'll get into later on, um, and that'll be fine. So I just want to know that there's a whole spectrum in that. So just wanted to bring you, wanted to bring the, Bring, help you understand the concept of cranial uh, settling again. Uh, remember, we said the skull weighs about 11 pounds, and as it's balanced in the spine. Uh, by the way, uh, for people listening to this podcast in Europe, it's six kilograms. So, yeah, no, that's, that's great. Helpful. We have people listening all over the world, so that's great. Right, so it's six kilograms, mm-hmm. um, and so so you have this 11 pounds or six kilograms that when you stand, and because the ligaments are loose and lax, that that bowling ball or the head settles down, it drops down. And it drops down at the same time when it drops down, it sort of uh, uh, puts the cervical spine out of place. The vertebra in there go out of place. They, they I, I shouldn't say they get twisted, but it's something like that. It's like when you take a, uh, when you put something heavy on something and it deforms. So it sort of deforms the cervical spine. And that is how we, that's why we need an upright MRI. And then 
then the neurosurgeons and the radio neuroradiologists uh, draw all kinds of lines with the computer and they measure these angles and say like huh this angle seems to be off and hence it is um, there is also craniocervical instability and some of those pictures you can actually literally see that the vertebra have shifted significantly when they're upright now that would not show up if they're lying down you can actually see the shifting even on an x-ray an upright x-ray uh, so just want to touch a little bit on imaging in eds um, imaging in eds is different from imaging in other people radiological imaging in eds is different because it's a dynamic you need to get dynamic pictures because uh, if you take a picture, I'll give you an analogy. Um, let's say you have a loose wheel on your car. One of the wheels is loose and it's now parked in your driveway. You will never have an idea which wheel is loose. There's no way you can guess which one is loose. It's only when you drive, that's when you know that which wheel is loose. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing over here. You have to take these pictures in different positions to see how things shift uh, at different angles. So for example, when you do an upright MRI, you look to your left, take a picture. You look to your right, you take a picture. You look up, take a picture. You look down, take a picture. And then the, the neuroradiologists are going to put this on a computer screen, draw lines, angles, and then they can say whether there's been shifting or no shifting. And that, so some of the, besides an MRI or, or an X-ray, there's something called a DMX, digital motion X-ray. And digital motion X-rays are, um, there are far and few, but they are done here. And these people who do them can actually measure these changes and angles. A lot of them are done by chiropractors who um, look at this and they obviously understand mobility of the spine. So they can measure these angles. Um, I don't think we've, at least in the United States, it's not mainstream. Um, it's not in a, you won't find it in a hospital or something. It'd be more mm -hmm. in a private practice uh, place. So that's um, all about cranial settling. Uh, now, I've talked a lot about cranial settling and it, I want to segue into the reason why we are so I'm so focused on that is when you when you when patients go in for surgery um, so they go in for cervical spine surgery or for cervical stabilization surgery um, and if they are you know they're lying on the operating room table okay and their spine is all crooked and the surgeon may go in and fuse it in that crooked position and and the results are never good the other way to do that is what is called an invasive cranial, uh, sorry, invasive cervical traction. Um, and in this case, what they do is they um, put a pair of tongs on the side of your head and there's a pulley, it goes over, a rope goes over the pulley and then they put some weights and literally pull up the head a little bit. And it starts, they start at usually 10 pounds and then they go to 20 pounds and then 30 pounds and not more than 40 pounds. And one of these points, um, the patient, um, all of a sudden things change. Everything improves significantly. Mm -hmm. Their tolerance to light improves, their tolerance to sound improves, their breathing improves, their brain fog improves, their lightheadedness improves. And the surgeon, the local surgeon who does this for, um, they call it the Jesus moment. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I kind of told him like, that kind of sounds a little you know, religious and somebody might not like that. He said, we've tried changing the name, but everybody has come back to the Jesus moment. And he said that there's a, there's a and I've seen videos of this, and these patients uh, are, are thrilled by the, by the experience of an invasive uh, cervical traction. Now, let's say somebody has this so-called Jesus moment or has, an, so they, and numerically, they look for an 80% response. If there's an 80% response to a few factors, like, like um, uh, 
dizziness, brain fog, uh, breathing, um, exposure to light, exposure to loud sounds. And if there's an 80% improve, then the candidate, the patient is a candidate for surgery. And let's say I get, I, I have EDS and I get this, I do the invasive cervical traction and my response is that 25 pounds. That is the weight I will have on my, that is the traction I'll have on my head when I go in for surgery. So when you get on the operating room table, they put that same traction of 25 pounds because that's your best position. That's the best position for the spine. The spine is the most straightened out at that position. And that's the position they fuse it. So, that's so, so interesting. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm still like amazed that somebody thought of that and that it, that's so yes. cool. Sorry, go ahead. I have nothing. Yeah. I, I to tried add. to think of an analogy and I could not, but it would be, the analogy would be if you're, if you're trying to repair a little stick, like it's a broken stick and you put super glue, you really want that super glue, the stick to be very straight and aligned before you put the super glue. Yep. And this is the situation where you want the neck to be in the most optimum position with your, with your, with the weights for you to fuse this. Yeah, no, and I think doing that when the patient is awake and can can give that feedback, so then they have that additional data is is very very helpful. I'm wondering for some people might be listening to this and think that they're they maybe they've seen a neurosurgeon and they have not proposed that technique because I know some neurosurgeons do that right and some don't. Well, or do you have any thoughts? So about here that? comes here comes another hack. <laughs> okay, comes a hack. So thermal gen is, is a thermal person. If you have <laughs> a surgeon that says. Oh, no, 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 cervical. I'm just going to fuse you. I can see it where the problem is. I'm just going to fuse you. So you're going to tell me that you're going to fuse my neck in, in the worst position that you're seeing on the MRI. If you come across that surgeon, just politely say thank you and run. <laughs> now, it is kind of sad because we literally have millions of neurosurgeons in the country and they don't follow that. The right. only neurosurgeon that I know who follows that is Dr. Bolognese in New York. Right. And you know, as a as a third person, you know, living in Rhode Island and seeing these patients, uh, the results of surgeries from different surgeons, I have never seen a complication. I, I've never seen, a, I shouldn't say complication, but I've never seen a patient come back and say, after five years of the first surgery, that they have to now extend the fusion. Mm. I, I have not seen that. That's actually amazing because that's a very common problem, having to extend the fusion. So if you okay. have not seen that, um, and, and I haven't either. I've had a lot of patients that have had surgery with him. And so I think that's um, a lot of who might not realize that that's a very important piece of data. Cause whenever you fuse a part of the spine that transmits forces to the other parts of the spine, right? So that, so that kind of series of, of, of events is not that rare. So that's, uh, that's very, very good information. Yeah. Well, and what a great hack that, I mean, it's something we talk about, but it's so, it's so wonderful to hear a you doctor mean the hack say, about running away. Yes. It's, <laughs> oh, okay. it's really, it's really empowering to hear an, another doctor say, Hey, if you, if this doesn't seem right, if this is not lining up with what you think it should be happening, just leave. It's okay not to do that. Because a lot of times those of us who are not medical professionals feel like, well, they said that this would work. And I went to them. So I guess I should, even though it doesn't sound like it will. And the data I've read doesn't say, you know, it's empowering to know you don't have to continue that if, it, if it's not right. Or if you get more research and it says, no, it's empowering to hear you can walk away. You know, the term, your neck is on the line. <laughs> this is exactly where it came from. This is true. Your neck is on the line. You know, I always tell people that when you buy a car, you talk to 20 different people and say, hey, what's a good car? What's a good yeah. car? You do research, you do all sorts of things. But when it comes to having surgery on your neck, you go to the first guy and he makes all these yeah. bizarre promises. Oh, you're going to be you know, you're going to be in the circus in the next week and <laughs> everything's going to be fine and great. And 
but but the fact is you know i have to i'm not i have no motivation over here mm-hmm. dr balwani refuses to pay me and so <laughs> i have but you know i just look at this and say you know firstly you look at the science does it make sense or not right right me, it makes total sense mm-hmm. then you look at the results of the sur- of this you know you compare the results of other surgeons to this surgeon right. and then you say well yes there is a big difference and you know anybody can understand that if you feel something that's already in a in a very displaced position the, if the spine is in a very displaced position and you haven't corrected that mm-hmm. you haven't aligned that little broken stick mm-hmm. then fusing it or putting super glue on that broken stick is always going to be a broken stick mm-hmm. or i should say a crooked stick and once you have a crook, if you fuse that neck in a crooked crooked position mm-hmm. then then in a few years you're going to have start having more problems mm-hmm. now i do get some pushback from from patients and they'll say oh i i hate the idea of having a you know a need a, a traction put in my head but number one this is done under anesthesia like when they put the when they put the pins for the for the traction they give you a light sedation mac anesthesia so you're not aware of that you don't feel it and you know considering that it's a small tiny little hole which will eventually close up it's worth that that experience i mean even if it's an unpleasant experience it's a mildly unpleasant experience and i have asked patients this like you had a cervical traction how was it and they said it was fine they never had they didn't worry about that pin being put in their head and all that it wasn't done mm-hmm. so i just don't, you know it's really important to get the data from this cervical traction if your response to a cervical traction is only 20% getting a surgery is not going to help mm-hmm. cuz you don't have as bad a cervical traction that a surgery would help yeah that's Hence, a good hack yes that's a good when not to do surgery yeah. and and i always in my in my view it's always been you know dr bluestein you worked in operating rooms i worked in operating rooms and sometimes you just look at the surgeon and say where did he get his training from unfortunately yes yes <laughs> and then you see these brilliant surgeons doing brilliant work yes right mm-hmm. definitely so so in, in my in my in my theory is that a good surgeon should know when not to do surgery yep that's the key thing when yeah. and they know that there is that this is not going to help so if you flunk the invasive cranial traction then surgery is not going to help I'm actually so glad that you just brought that up because I don't know if you've had this but I've had patients that have I agree with you about getting, you know, s- several opinions. You're right about the buying a car. Your analogies by the way are fabulous. They're yes, they're they are. they're they those are also hacks by the way. Your analogies are all Also oh, the mini hacks. They're mini hacks, yes. <laughs> okay. Um but but what I find is that I have had some patients where they've they, they'll keep looking for uh an opinion until they get someone who will operate on them. So if you've seen a surgeon and they're saying surgery is not indicated, you really you know surgeons like to do surgery right mm-hmm. they train to do surgery so if you've seen a surgeon and they're saying surgery is not indicated it's not like there's necessarily a problem getting a second opinion now, that might be a very good idea but if you've seen two people or three people who are saying surgery is not indicated i would strongly suggest people not keep going until they find someone because you will eventually find that person right? right so patient selection when you're if you're a surgeon patient selection is everything and who they're turning away for surgery is is everything good surgeons are very careful about that patient selection and they know who will benefit from surgery and who won't right and and that's that's what i tell patients i mean my even my non eds patients i tell them mm-hmm. that you know <clears throat> don't just because a surgeon i'll send you to a good surgeon that i think i would go to mm-hmm. and if he says surgery is not an option then stop yep not an option yep if he says it's an option 
then you can go and get another opinion from another surgeon as to what kind of surgery that needs to be mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. That's a different story. Right. But don't don't go doctor shopping. Yeah. Yep. All right. So that's a we sh- we will put that down under the section of hacks. <laughs> All right, Dr. Bluestein, here comes your Eagle syndrome. All right. This is one of those conditions. After 30 years in in looking at ADS patients, you think you know everything. And then all of a sudden, a condition, they start showing up with another condition. And I'm like, where did I, where was this? <laughs> I remember mast cell activation syndrome. You know how old mast cell activation syndrome is? About 12 years. Wow. 12 years ago was when the first paper was published. And I read the paper and I said, yeah, I'm not going to see one of these patients. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and now it's like, you know, now you have mass everywhere. And not only do you have it in EDS patients, uh, now you have it in long COVID patients. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's it's just so bizarre. So Eagle syndrome is one of those. Uh, for the longest time, this is this is more of facial pain. So the pain is in in the face. And and I guess the face is part of the head, right? Um, these patients will present with a sharp shooting pain in the jaw, on one side of the jaw, or it could be both. And they also have it in the back of their throat. And it feels like there's something stuck in the back of their throat. They have pain in the base of their tongue. Um, they'll have it in the ears uh, or ear and into the neck and then going into the face. They have difficulty swallowing. And it feels like there's a <clears throat> foreign object stuck in the throat. The pain gets worse with chewing, swallowing, um, and it also gets really worse with turning their neck. It also gets worse with touching the back of the throat, which I do. Uh, that's, I always put my left hand. That's the other hack. This is a doctor hack. Never stick a finger into a patient's mouth with your dominant hand. <laughs> Don't put your right hand in their mouth. Or into an elevator door. Or into an elevator door. Always stick, check it with your left, left, left hand. So you put your finger into the back of their throat and you sort of press to the side and they're going to swear at you, which is fine, which is good because that, that confirms your diagnosis. It's really bad. Okay, this. So, what is Eagle syndrome? It's got nothing to do with the bird. It's this is this is Doctor Eagle who discovered it. Um, <clears throat> there's a little bone in the in the corner of the jaw, and it it's it has a purpose, and the purpose is that some ligaments and muscles attach to it. Um, but for some reason, it starts to elongate that bone, and when it elongates, it presses on a nerve called the glossopharyngeal nerve. Mm. Glossop means tongue, pharyngeal means throat. So it the pain is in the tongue and throat. So very briefly, um, when patients have, when someone comes in with, when you have pain in the, on one side or both sides of the face and it kind of goes into the throat and something feels like it's st- stuck in the throat, think of Eagle syndrome. The way it's diagnosed is what I just, what I just told you was the doctor puts his finger uh, into the throat and presses on the styloid process and they can imme- they immediately feel the pain. The scan that you need is, is a 3D CT scan. So they take, a, it's actually a CT scan and then there's a reformatted into a three-dimensional view and that's the gold standard. And the good news is surgery has a cure rate of 80%. And I've struggled with this. Why would, why would people with EDS have Eagle syndrome? And I have no solution to that. I don't know why. Now, I've not seen it because I do see non-EDS patients and I've not seen it in them. Mm-hmm. It is often misdiagnosed as trigeminal neuralgia. Mm-hmm. Oh, you have pain in the face. It must be trigeminal neuralgia. And so this is something, if it relates to the throat, you should start thinking of Eagle syndrome right away. 
facial pain with throat problems is, is Eagle syndrome. And the cure rate, like I said, surgery is really not a really major surgery, but the, but the response is fantastic. They shorten the, the bone that sticks out. It's called the styloid process. They shorten that. You, you said you've never seen it in a non-EDS patient. How and, and you don't know why necessarily this would occur more often in, in EDS patients. How often have you seen it in EDS patients? I mean, I, I know uh, the number to pull out of your hat necessarily, but... I mean, I don't obviously don't have the figures, but I would say one in 10 patients, one in 10 EDS patients have it. It's fairly common. Really? Wow. That's the puzzling part. Wow. That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. And that's the puzzling part is like up till a few, up till a few years ago, I didn't even know Eagle syndrome existed. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was reading about facial pains and I was trying to figure them out. And then um, I came across this Eagle syndrome. I said, oh, so easy. You stick a finger in somebody's throat and if it hurts, and if you still have a finger, they haven't bitten it off, then you're good. <laughs> so with your left hand, left, left hand into their mouth, not the right, preferably the pinky finger, because that's sacrificable. <laughs> you're, you're you, don't, least you, don't need your, you don't need your index finger, right? Right. So the most useless finger is the pinky finger and pains. Stick that in there. Is there, and, um, is there a, a physical, like, do you see uh, a shifting of the jaw or sort of a, a misalignment of it that goes with it or is it purely just the lengthening of that bone in the back like it's no. just visual assessment you don't it's see it visual um, there's nothing um you cannot see it from the outside there's no change in the jaw it's a really tiny bone it's barely a few centimeters long like maybe about a half i think it's about half inch um and it's and it's behind the jawbone sometimes i'll try and even push from the outside and they'll feel the pain hmm. but the best test is to push it from inside uh, and it's so what I tell what the point I'm trying to make here is that if you have facial pain, which you may have been told that it is a trigeminal neuralgia, but if it has throat symptoms, something stuck in your throat or your, your tongue hurts, the base of the tongue hurts, think of Eagle syndrome. Mm -hmm. So with this, we can, we can move on to, um, the thoracic spine. So moving down, so we've, we've, we've talked a lot about the neck, um, uh, moving down to the thorax, um, the thoracic portion of the spine is relatively a stable spine um, because it's you know it's um, it's part of the rib cage and so it doesn't really show up uh, being a problem in the non-EDS population. But of course, the EDSs don't make life easy for us, <laughs> and they have to have something which does not which you've never even paid attention to. But anyway, um, jokes apart, they do have um, thoracic pain. They don't often complain about it. Uh, but if you push over there on the thoracic spine, they'll say, oh, yeah, that really hurts. I mean, they may complain of pain uh, in the upper back, what is called as a coat hanger distribution. Mm -hmm. uh, and they might even also complain of pain in the between the shoulder blades. They may complain of pain that there. And uh, again, the spine is made up of little bones, like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle put together, stacked uh, together. And they're all, they're all connecting. They, each one connects to the one above and the one below with lig ligaments. And the problem here is that the ligaments are elastic, so it shifts. And when it shifts, it hurts. For a physician, the way to diagnose that is you go to the thoracic spine and you go, go to the midline, and then you go to a little to the left or the right, and you push with your thumb, and it will be tender. They'll say, yeah, that hurts. Now, the, the issue here is um, rib subluxations. Mm -hmm. So each rib connects to the thoracic spine. And it connects actually with three joints, three teeny tiny little joints. And the reason it there is a joint, there are joints there is because each rib has to constantly move up and down. As you breathe in, it moves up. And then as you breathe out, it moves down. 
And so what happens is your ribs are constantly moving and they are connected. They're tethered down to the um, thoracic spine with three little joints. Two things happen here. One is that people with, um, <clears throat> so people with EDS tend to slouch and I'll get, get into that a little later, but they tend to slouch. And when they, um, and it's not a habit thing, it's, a, it's just a condition. And when they slouch, then that rib, the joint, that rib, the junction between the rib and the spine, the rib pops out of its joint. And that's called a rib subluxation. And it's an excruciatingly painful condition. It feels like you're having a heart attack. Hmm. Now, <clears throat> so the rib subluxes out and how do you treat that? So I'm going to talk about how to treat it when it subluxes out. And then I'm going to talk about how to prevent it from subluxing. <clears throat> when it subluxes out, uh, you can lie on a roller, you know, one of those um, exercise rollers. Uh, yeah, like the foam rollers. Yeah, not, no, not the foam one, but a little, some of the hard ones. Mm -hmm. so oh, rubber ones? Yeah, hard, they're rubberized, but they're hard. And you oh. lie on it and you roll back and forth and that pops the rib back in place. Rolling your thoracic spine back and forth on it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you, you, you put the roller on the floor and you um, lie facing the ceiling mm -hmm. and then you move, you move back and forth. And when it moves over that sublux rib, it pops the rib back in place. That's a double hack. That's the, oh, <laughs> wow. Look at that. We're on a roll with our hacks. Literally. There we go. Roll, roll yeah. to put the hit rib in. And uh, all right. So we're rolling on, we're on the floor and we're rolling back and forth and pushing this rib back in place. You've mm -hmm. got that done now. But mm -hmm. the thing is that you can't be walking around like you, if you're walking in a mall and suddenly your rib pops, you don't want to pull out the roller in the middle of the mall and start <laughs> pushing it back. Um, so to prevent it, there are a few things. One is that you want to stabilize the thoracic spine. You don't want to slouch. And it's like I told you, it's not a habit. The problem is that the, <clears throat> the thoracic portion, the, the, the chest portion of our spine is held together by ligaments. And these ligaments are lax. And because most of the stuff like the lungs and the heart and in women, the breasts are in front, you tend to lean forward. Mm. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And then you just automatically start to slouch forward and to sit back straight up is an effort. Mm -hmm. And when it's an effort, you, you know, you get tired of eventually and you just let go. So some of the techniques to keeping it stabilized is to um, one, you can try a compression garment. Okay. Um, there are a few that you can get. Uh, there's a company called DM Orthotics. Um, there's a British uh, UK based company but they do sell in the United States uh, and they make these uh, pretty cool uh, shirt like garments that can help keep the rib, the pot. Yeah. More like your posture. Correct. Um, there's another company called spinal Q spinal Q. Um, sorry. The company is align med, A L I G N med, mm -hmm. and they produce this uh, more like a vest. It's called spinal Q. Mm -hmm. um, but this, these are, these are big and bulky. And you're never going to convince an 18 year old to wear that. <laughs> and that's been my thing. So, but there's another one I want to talk about was um, the body braid. Mm -hmm. So, so the body braid looks like a series of tapes connected together. They're not sticky tapes, they're tapes. And they, uh, they're designed to cover the joints, mostly the joints and the spine. And um, what that does is it keeps your spine in alignment. It actually 
keeps everything in alignment, starting from the shoulders, the spine, the pelvis, the knees, everything keeps it in alignment. It's a phenomenal uh, piece of a, a device, a piece wow. of wear. Um, it was, just to give you a little background, it was uh, invented by a physician in Toronto, Canada. And um, I think he spent many, many, many years researching it and many different designs and finally came up with this design. Um, and on a personal basis, I tried it and I don't have EDS and I loved it. I felt so much Thank better. You. I wasn't holding myself up and you mm. know my posture was better. Uh, <laughs> patients um, love it. Um, it's, I mean, if you go on their website, you can see it. Um, it's not even that expensive. Um, and there are videos on how to use it, but you can also set up an appointment with the physician um, and he can demonstrate it to you for you. Um, there's a tiny learning curve because there are so many tapes on it. There's a teeny tiny learn. I mean, for me, with my one brain cell, the learning curve was three ways, three times. So I can, and you guys with EDS have like a million brain cells. EDSs are extremely smart. It's part of, this is one of the, the strangest things I've seen. They're extremely smart. With all their fatigue and brain fog, they ace their exams. That's um, cool. So, the, so even though it looks like a lot of tape, tapes around and it looks like a bit, a bit of a mess of uh, tapes, but it's really just a learning curve. Uh, it takes just wearing it once or twice and you know the trick behind it. Mm. <clears throat> it's, it's discreet. You can wear it under your clothes and it's, um, it's very effective. It seems like another, uh, we're, we're recording this during the summer and people will listen all different times of the year, but another advantage to me of the body braid is that it's a lot cooler than some of these other things, right? That cover a lot more of your skin. And so we know people with EDS are often temperature intolerant or the heat, you know, increases their mast cell activation. So do you, do you find that it's more comfortable for people? Cause they're not, they're not adding another. Absolutely. Um, so that's been my problem before I came across body braid was that recommending patients, especially young patients to wear a compressive garment on their torso i mean frankly even for me it's uncomfortable to wear mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no one likes to have a tight tight mm -hmm. shirt unless you have six packs <laughs> uh, but the benefits of it you realize you feel better when when you wear it so right that's that's the thing you feel you feel great when you wear one of these compressive shirts mm -hmm. garments and then the on the flip side so it's it's a lot of it depends on the patient's wishes mm -hmm. um so that's why i mentioned all of them because they all work. Mm -hmm. And and of all these, the most, um, the lightest one is the body braid. And mm -hmm. it is also very discreet. Um, you, you know, you put it under, you put it under your shirt, it takes two seconds to wear it. Uh, and it's not kind of choking your, your, your lungs. Mm -hmm. So this is on the, on the thoracic uh, part of the spine with the rib subluxations. So I was really curious to ask you, uh, Dr. Chopra, if you think that some of these differences that we see in people with EDS versus people who don't have EDS, could it be because we have greater levels of introception at the same time that we have less good proprioception, which is kind of a, an interesting phenomenon in and of itself. But, you know, people refer to us as like canaries in the coal mine and that kind of thing. So do you think some of these phenomena that are harder to explain on the basis of differences in connective tissue, do you think that it could be on the basis of differences in sensation and um, that kind of thing? So I know you you had previously referred this to in terms of uh, Eagle syndrome being more common in EDS, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we, we were we were puzzled puzzled about why it would be common in EDS, and we didn't know that. Mm -hmm. uh, and th in that context, it's not. I don't think it is because in Eagle syndrome there is a definitive increase in the length of this bone. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay. there's no there's no gray area in this. You okay. can literally see this 
little mm-hmm. bone. It looks like a dagger and it's protruding out through the jaw. Mm-hmm. And so the question that you were trying to ask was, are people with EDS more aware of their body mm-hmm. or sensations in their mm-hmm. body? Mm-hmm. I would think it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. One of the toughest part of my seeing an EDS patient is to make them talk. I will ask a teenage girl, you know, does your right wrist hurt? And she'll say, no, it doesn't hurt. And then when you start diving a little deeper into it and she'll say, oh yeah, it hurts when I write and I can't write for more than two minutes. They don't really, they've, they've grown up to accepting like pain is that every human being feels that lightheadedness is every human being feeling that. So in some parts, yes, they do have a more awareness of their issues because it's affecting their functioning. Mm-hmm. But in some parts, they are they they grow up thinking like, okay, this is you know everybody has everybody gets lightheaded when they stand. So when they get lightheaded, they don't care. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting um, a, an interesting point that that we have seen played out through so many people that we are in contact with with EDS is that they everything hurts or they're so aware of everything that it's hard for them to tell what is quote unquote normal. And what is something that they should bring up and talk about? Should I tell them that my wrist clicks? Oh, everybody's wrist probably clicks. Should I tell them that my fingers hurt when I pull my, the comforter up over my chest because it subluxates? Probably happens to everybody. So I, I think I think what you're saying, Dr. Bluestein, is perhaps something like Eagle syndrome, not necessarily Eagle syndrome, but perhaps something like that is not necessarily more common in people with EDS, but people with EDS just are more aware of such pain and issues. And so they point it out more. Um, and that's an interesting question to ask. And I, I think... I, I think it's that fine line of my experience is people with EDS do have much more awareness in their body. And at the same time, there's so much of that, at least low level amount of everyday pain. It's hard for them to turn down the static and figure out which ones they're supposed to be paying attention to. Does that make sense? Yes. So I like the word static. Um, it is a lot of static. There's a lot mm-hmm. of noise that they live with. And it's only when it starts to get worse. And we'll talk about this when we talk about mass cell activation syndrome, how this noise um, increases to a point where it becomes unbearable. Mm-hmm. And I think all EDS patients have pain, but um, at times this pain will, will go up to a point where they become non-functional mm-hmm. and that's when they start seeking treatments, but they have pain all the time. It's just that they've l- grown to accepting it as, you know, Hey, this is normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think your point about uh, sometimes I, I feel that way too, sometimes having to try to extract the information. And I think what happens is we, if we report our symptoms to a number of people and they're, they're not seemingly interested in the information, then we stop reporting our symptoms because, or, or let's say we do report them and they do a couple tests and everything comes back unremarkable. Then, you know, we kind of, we, we don't want to be in that position of being, oh, you're fine. You're fine. You know, just kind of go away. So I think that's um, a good point that you raised. Hey, can we make sure that we cover uh, the lower back as we're sort of looking at the spine from head all the way to tail? Mm-hmm. Um, so what have you got for us in the lower back? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, so the lower back, uh, like the rest of the spine, um, does have its issues with instability. But oddly enough, I don't see a lot of instability, uh, like damaging instability in the lumbar spine. And that's, uh, I mean, I haven't had patients where I said, okay, you know, your lumbar spine is so unstable that you need to... Um, get surgery or something. I haven't, I haven't seen that. And that's a little surprising, but the the point, the relevant, the relevance of that, of lower back pain here is in terms of tethered cord syndrome. Mm-hmm. So tethered cord means your, your, your spinal cord is tethered down. The normal spinal cord ends at the L1 level, which in, in a, in a, in a lady would be at about the bra strap level. 
So what I'm trying to say is that it's pretty high up. It's not lower, lower, lower down. And it, that's where it ends. And um, it ends as in a conical form. Um, so it's called a conus. And then it, there's a little string that hangs from it, which has no purpose in life. That string is called phylum. It has got no nerves in it, nothing in it. It just hangs there. It's a remnant of, uh, it's from embryology. It's a, it's a remnant of something that we don't have anymore. And it, but the thing is that it hangs loose. And the reason it hangs loose is because the spinal cord and the brain shift. As we move around, they all shift. As we grow, as children grow taller, this, the this bone, bony part grows faster than the spinal cord itself. And so it all shifts together. So, so the spinal cord and the brain are under no tension. And that's why the phylum hangs loose. In tethered cord, what happens is these, these patients, the phylum, that little useless piece of thread hanging at the bottom, at the end of the spinal cord, is tethered there. It's, it's stuck over there. And when that gets stuck, uh, then it pulls, it puts a tension on the spinal cord. And remember I told you about the corners, the conical end of the spinal cord, which ends at L1, can may get pulled down to L2 or even L3. So, it, so essentially there's a tension on the spinal cord <clears throat> from a tethered cord syndrome. And at different ages, it presents differently. So I'm not gonna go into the babies and because that's, it's pretty obvious in babies, the diagnosis, but we'll talk about more in the, sem in the, in the teenage to the adult group, how they present. Um, one of the things they present with is uh, lower back pain. Uh, now, I don't want you to think that, oh, I have lower back pain, therefore I have tethered cord. You, you can have lower back pain for 16 million other reasons. Absolutely. Um, then you also have, um, what they also have what is called a neurogenic bladder. Uh, this is essentially where the bladder does not talk to the brain. And I'll explain that a little more in detail. The key one that I look at is their legs get heavier or weaker as they walk. That is a key point for me. And they'll always tell us, tell you that, you know, when I walk a short distance, it feels like my leg is getting weaker and there's, and painful. They have diffuse pain in their legs. And the reason why I'm saying it's diffuse is because it's not along a specific nerve distribution. The whole leg may hurt. And here's the thing, it may either be the left leg or the right leg. Today it could be the right leg, tomorrow it could be the left leg. It's, these are some of the key things that we look at. Um, it's not in a very specific area of the leg. It's unrelated to the joints and the legs get heavier as they walk. They have bladder issues known as neurogenic bladder. And they also have this back pain that doesn't, cannot be explained by anything else. Um, so what is a neurogenic bladder? This is, they have, um, they, they go often. So they go a lot to the bathroom. And that can be anywhere. And that's, that's a difficult question for a lot of people to answer because EDSs don't know what is normal. They think going to the bathroom 20 times a day is normal. So there's no number, but going a lot uh, is considered to be increased frequency. Sometimes they can have urinary hesitancy and they'll say, oh, you know, my daughter is like a camel and she doesn't even pee for the whole day. Um, <clears throat> they have urgency. And it's like, okay, I can't wait. I need to, we can't wait for the next McDonald's. I got to do it right now. Um, then they have a sense of incomplete emptying of the bladder. So they just peed, but it still looks like there's some left. It feels like, yeah, not, not satisfied. There's something mm -hmm. left. And they may either go out and come back again or something like that. Um, in some cases, they can have incontinence. So I just want to clarify incontinence. Incontinence in women, there is a one incontinence which comes with stress. That's like when you cough, sneeze, laugh, 
there's a little bit of a urine that comes out. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a lot of urine coming out with no control. The first ones are the most important. The incontinence is not as common here that I see. This is tethered cord. These are the symptoms of tethered cord. The one point I wanted to make was that the incidence of um, patients who have carry malformation, 70% of those will have tethered cord syndrome. Wow. So the actual number is 66%. So 66% of people with carry malformation will have tethered cord. And the significance of that is that when you see a patient with tethered cord, or when you get diagnosed with tethered, sorry, when you when you get diagnosed with carry malformation, start looking for tethered cord symptoms. So there's a high incidence of tethered cord in patients with carry malformation. The problem with tethered cord syndrome is that MRI is not a useful tool. That's the problem. Mm. Um, hence the term occult tethered cord. I think all tethered cords are occult because it's not often that you see the phylum or the, the tethering, or you, it's not often that you see that the conus has come down a little bit. Um, it's, it's not, you cannot depend on an MRI. And this is a big deal because the world of neurosurgeons are very strongly divided on this. There is a major group that says, has said that if it's not an MRI, it doesn't exist. And then you have this smaller group that understand this situation and they'll say, you really don't have to have it on MRI. You can base it on clinical diagnosis. So, so these surgeons will look at the clinical history, do an exam, and that's what they base it on. They will do what is called a urodynamic study, a UDS, a urodynamic study. The urologists will do it. They look at uh, how much urine do you retain after you finished peeing, and you know they look at the how strong is a sphincter and all these studies that they do on that. And that kind of is another piece of information. So before a surgeon goes into the operating room with a patient for tethered cord, they have all this data with them. And they don't just solely depend on an MRI. That's the thing. And the, the problem that I run into is, um, like for example, some centers absolutely will not accept it. Like in Boston, they will not accept it. They do not believe in the fact that um, if it's, if it's um, tethered cord, you can have tethered cord without an MRI. They will not. Hmm. That's the problem that I run into. Yeah. This is, um, so just to recap on tethered cord syndrome, um, one is that it's the phylum is kind of stuck down at the bottom. Um, oftentimes, uh, in, when you when I see it in teenage group, when it, when I see it in teenagers, and you you go back and you talk to the mom, and and there will be a growth spurt like six months before that, they had a sudden growth spurt, and now they have all these pain in their leg and all that, often attributed to growing pains, but it's not. Hmm. Uh, growing pain is pain in the in is, is below the knee in the front. That's it. It's not a diffuse pain in the leg. It's not weakness in the leg. <clears throat> Usually shows up at night. So patients with uh, tethered cord present with back pain, bladder symptoms. Legs get weaker as they walk, and they have a diffuse pain in their legs. Um, doesn't match up with any nerve distribution. Uh, bladder issues are increased frequency, sense of incomplete emptying of their bladder. Uh, these are the common symptoms, um, often associated with carry malformation. Uh, <clears throat> MRI is not a very dependable tool for this. Um, the diagnosis may mostly depends on a clinical history and examination. Um, and I have to say that, you know, um, Dr. Klinga, who does a lot of these surgeries in, is in, is like a mile from my office. And I've often sent patients to her and I've, I've always asked her for feedback. Like, hey, I diagnosed this patient with tethered cord. Do you, what did you think? Or how was your surgical finding? And um, I think, I don't think I've been wrong, mm. but that doesn't mean that I didn't miss somebody. 
Mm -hmm. Right. But right. I, so it it takes a bit of so on when I come to when it comes to diagnosing tethered cord, I really grill the patient a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, are you sure your legs feel heavier? Mm -hmm. Are you sure that you are pain aware? Are you sure about your bladder symptoms? Although Dr. Kling has told me that the bladder symptoms are not that crucial nowadays. They don't they haven't seen that to be that important. Mm -hmm. So when you do the surgery, the surgery is actually not a, how do I put it? A scary surgery. She they don't remove any bone or something like that. They go in there, they they find out that phylum, and then they snip it and remove a section of that. The question is, what benefit will you see? And so I'm going to just, this is just picking into my experience. The first benefit these patients see is that their bladder symptoms improve. And this literally happens as soon as they wake up from surgery. It's that fast. Their bladder symptoms improve within the first 24 hours. Wow. The leg symptoms take a little longer. So I, I found that it takes about a year to be like, come to a point where everything has stabilized out. So expectation, this is what I'm talking about is expectations from um, this thing. We've had some surprise surprises also, um, good surprises. We've In some cases, we've seen GI symptoms improve. Um, in some cases, we have seen neck pain improve. Mm -hmm. And I did, truly don't have a great explanation for that. I mean, I, I don't even know how the GI symptoms improve, but we know that the spinal cord carries all the nerves. We know all of these things, but the nerves to the GI system don't even go through the spinal cord. They have their own pathway, the sympathetic nerves and the parasympathetic nerves. Mm -hmm. So, so we've we've seen some surprisingly good results, happy results. But but the usual expectation should be to see bladder improvement in bladder symptoms and leg symptoms, and that I think is um, our lower back. Oh, Would you be just able... wait? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have questions. Um, just wanted to touch on SI joint pain. Right? That was on my list. Yep. We'll talk about sacral leg joint pain when we talk about leg issues. Okay. Because it's closely related to that. Okay, that's fine. What about Tarlov cyst? Tarlov cysts are tiny cysts that I mean, they can be tiny, they can be big, but these are tiny cysts. See, so let's go through the anatomy very quick on that. We have the bone, the bony spine, okay, and it has got holes everywhere, and it has holes through which all kinds of nerves come out, and then you have these holes on the sides through which nerves come out, and <clears throat> sometimes um, a little cyst, a, a cyst is a is a tiny, teeny tiny balloon. You can look at that. I mean, it's a really tiny balloon that will develop at this at this junction uh, where the bone, where where the, where the hole through which the nerve is coming out at that junction, uh, a cyst may develop. These cysts are like balloons, um, and some of them they're like balloons filled with water. And so balloons with, filled with water are squishy, and sometimes they're squishy enough that they don't cause any symptoms. You do an MRI for some other reason, and you'll see a tall cyst. You talk to the patient, hey, do you have pain in this area? And they'll say, no, you leave it alone. Sometimes they become bigger or they become tighter or they're at a really bad place and they're actually compressing a nerve. That Tarlov cyst needs to be treated. And there are two ways to treat it. There are some physicians who will go in there and stick a needle into the Tarlov cyst and literally burst it open. And in some cases, surgeons will go in there and will actually remove the cyst. But the point over here is that if you get an MRI report that says, hey, you've got a Tarlov cyst over here, or you've got three Tarlov cysts, don't panic. It may be completely benign and has nothing to do with your pain. Let the surgeon decide whether this is significant enough to be the reason for your pain. Mm -hmm. And Tarlov cysts is, is common in EDS. And again, it goes back to having loose connective tissue. And so there's, it, it probably happens from there. You do see Tarlov cysts in non-EDS patients, but not as often. 
but you do see it quite often in EDS patients. Yeah, that's what led to my EDS diagnosis. I was having severe sciatica and had MR, multiple MRIs, and they kept saying, no, that's not the problem. And finally, somebody said, maybe it is the Tarlov cyst. And so then I ended up you know, getting other uh, opinions and, and, and was reading and, and realized, oh, they're saying this is more common in connective tissue disorders. So then I started reading more about connective tissue disorders, and that's when the light bulb started to go See, off. That's, that's the problem, Dr. Bluzine. You should not have read that book. <laughs> you would not have had EDS. <laughs> <laughs> so this is another hack. Don't read books. <laughs> if you don't know it, then you can't have it, right? <laughs> exactly. You could be living your ha life happily. Oh, yeah. You know, my knee gives out. No problem. No, but, no big deal. But that's obviously, I'm, we're kidding here, but, yes. but it is crucial. I mean, very, very crucial that if you get that diagnosis of EDS is to educate yourself. And please don't think the worst of it. Stick to, if you're diagnosed with hypermobile EDS, stick to hypermobile EDS. Just because you have some scoliosis, do not walk into the kyphoscoliotic EDS um, mm. section. There are only 11 known cases of kyphoscoliotic EDS. One of them is my patient. I asked her what her number was, and she said, my number is nine. Wow. But she knows that. this is what I'm trying to say. All EDS patients have scoliosis. It's a dynamic scoliosis. Your ligaments are loose. Your spine is going to be sh shifting around all the time. Nothing to worry about. But if you're diagnosed with hypermobile EDS, just read about hypermobile EDS. Mm -hmm. and, and there again, it's that fine line of wanting enough information to be armed and to be knowledgeable without getting so much information that it can be overwhelming or stressful or send you down these rabbit holes that you, that you don't really need to go down. And I think part of the time, that's why people are afraid to go to a doctor or to look it up because they don't want to know. I mean, we joke about it and we're saying, well, if Dr. Bluestein just hadn't looked it up, she'd still be happily uh, working in the <laughs> OR as, a, as an anesthesiologist, which is not true, right? The health issues just sent you in a different direction and having that knowledge uh, helped her make wise decisions and yes. make those yeah, turns, tons right? of issues before that. Yeah. Tons. Right. Right. So something I tell my dancers, like my dancers are notorious for not wanting to go to the doctor. They don't want to know. And I say, going to the doctor isn't going to change what already exists in your body. It's just going to mm -hmm. give you more information on what to do with it. You can right. always choose to ignore the doctor. If he's like, oh, if you dance, you might, you know, tear a ligament. You can be like, okay, but at least then you know, and you know what the odds right. are. So don't be afraid of getting quality information that you can trust. It's, it's going to help you, even if it sounds like, oh no, now I know I have this. Well, you always had this, but now you know about it. And maybe there's things that you can do about it. So Jennifer, that's an extremely important point that you brought up. And we'll discuss a little bit more about in our 365th uh, <laughs> I'm so glad you have episode <laughs> on pediatric EDS. <laughs> and one of the key things that I, when I see a pediatric patient, I tell their patients, their parents that absolutely make sure that they're not hyperextending their joints. They're not in any activity or sports or something like that. That's going to get them into um, hyperextending their joints. You know, I have had national level athletes, um, ice skaters, rollerbladers, and all sorts of things uh, go from being at a national, uh, com competing at a national level down to being in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. So it is, prevention is the key in EDS. Yeah, um, absolutely. Prevention so that's and- the hack. That's another hack. Stop doing foolish things. Yeah, that, that's, that is that's one true. of the absolute reasons why we do this, to educate that yes. population. And that's why I go into dance studios a lot. And I talk about, don't do party tricks and they're, you know, don't be doing these things that may make your joints more unstable and cause you more pain down the road and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's great that we really appreciate you coming back to chat again. And obviously we're going to be having more conversations because 
this is a great way for people to learn because mm-hmm. they, like you said, I feel like that's one of the challenges as there has been more awareness about EDS. There's all these charlatans and, you know, p- people, I think, you know, some uh, clinics that are maybe not necessarily the best intended. They, you know, they, they know that these trigger words to put on their website or whatever. So I think it can be really hard for people to sort out where to get the information from and where to go for treatment and what treatments are a good choice for them versus might not be helpful. So it, 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 I feel like it's the wild west. It can be really, really, especially for this population of people. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why I said that, you know, talking to peers is the important part Mm -hmm. because your peers, someone may have gone through, let's say, you know, let's talk about um, invasive uh, cervical traction. Okay. There's a lot of fear in getting that done. Talk to someone who's already had it done and, you know, ask that person, how was your experience with it? Mm -hmm. There's yep. nothing like getting information from a person who has been through, has walked through that, those steps, yeah. has gone through that journey. Absolutely. I think that that wording was key, asking them what was their experience, because what I see sometimes is, I, I don't go into the support groups anymore, but for a while, I, I, you know, when I, especially when I was kind of early on in my own journey, while I was still working in the operating room and then, you know, kind of transitioning out of that. And sometimes I would see people say, well, you should. And you have to keep in mind in the support groups, they don't know your, your circumstances. So ask what their experience was, and then you can use that information, but just be careful about, you know, that person giving, again, it's information versus advice, right? This, this right. podcast is information, not specific advice, because there's a lot of people listening and they're all dealing with different symptoms, different situations. So we're, we're giving information to help them make more informed choices, but we can't give any one person advice because we don't know what their circumstances are. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 and don't forget how, how important the hacks are. Yeah. Our hack section is by far <laughs> the best. Yes. <laughs> right. And yes. because they're low intervention, they're low risk. Um, and, and we're certainly not advocating that anyone, you know, cut and paste someone else's experience and someone else's medical charts into their own medical charts, right? It's not a cut and paste. It's just a, a read and, and learn type of thing and, and find their own experiences. Um, well, this is a lot to absorb and we have literally <laughs> gone from head to tail, which I so appreciate. I love the way that we're looking at it. Uh, not from one specific system in the body, but from sort of a, com- a component, like a, a grouping of things. Um, is there, what's the best place for people to find you? I, I know people have already found you, but uh, for those of us, for those who are listening for the first time, what's the best place for people to find you? Oh yeah. My, my website, which is, which is in a pretty bad shape, uh, painri, painri.com, pain as in pain and ri Rhode Island, or my office email address is S-N-A-P-A, Snappa, 102 at gmail.com. Did you say Snappa, S-N-A? Yeah, Snappa, don't ask. It's an acronym. Snappa? Snappa? Yeah, 102 at gmail.com. Okay. You're going to be inundated, I'm sure. <laughs> now, are you are you a tweeter? Actually, um, I, I got an email from a lady in um, Peru mm. who had heard your podcast. Mm. See, so you're going to, you're going to have, you're going to get all the love now. Um, (laughs) Well, as always, it is so great to have you on the podcast and to have you contribute your wisdom to, um, to everything that we are trying to continue the conversation around uh, EDS, getting accurate information out there for people to be able to uh, feel like they are able to learn from uh, trusted and reputable sources and get information that actually um, may be helpful on their own health journey and their own sort of road to discovery. So um, thank you so much once again for being here and, and putting up with, with all of our questions and, and synthesizing everything so wonderfully. Thank you, Dr. Bluestein. Thank you, Jennifer. It's, it's a pleasure. It's, I love this podcast. It's, um, we, we keep it 
we keep it uh, solid, but we do add some humor to it. I do like that. Uh, <laughs> I love my hack section. We love your hacks. We oh, love your hacks. Uh, yeah. And we're going to have to write up a whole sheet of uh, yeah, Dr. Chopra's hacks. hacks. We, we, we will. And I, and I, I want to add one other thing in there that I thought of, Jen, as you were saying that when, when I was in my residency at, at the Mayo Clinic, one of the things that I really liked was it wasn't the senior faculty teaching the junior faculty, teaching the senior resident, teaching the junior resident, teaching the medical student. Like we learned directly from the faculty. So that's part of what Wow. You know, there's, it's like the telephone game, right? So yep. like by bringing someone like Dr. Chopra on, we, we want to bring um, experts that can share the information directly with our audience. So it's not filtered through all these different um, ways of getting contorted. And so we really appreciate Dr. Chopra, you taking the time because we know you're extremely busy and people being able to hear directly from you is so incredibly beneficial. I feel like it's such a great way for people to learn and get much more accurate information than if they get it from a whole bunch of other sources. And that's what we do. We bring in experts from all different areas to, to uh, get the best quality information that we possibly can for our listeners. Absolutely. And thank you very much, Jennifer. Thank you, Dr. Lynn Bluestein. It's, it's such an honor and thank you for inviting me. Um, I, the more, you know, I agree with you, the more information we share, the more we try to enlighten our patients. Um, it does, it does help. And, um, we work on the hashtag utrectomy movement. Everybody heard it here first. We are starting that. We are starting that. We're starting that. You heard it here first, right? (laughs) Well, you have been listening to the Bendy Bodies podcast with the Hypermobility MD. Our guest today has been Dr. Pradeep Chopra, a specialist in chronic complex pain conditions and their associated coexisting conditions. Dr. Chopra, thank you so much for once again coming back and being our guest. Thank you so much. And we will see everybody another time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast. Help us spread the word about joint hypermobility and related disorders by leaving a review and sharing the podcast. This helps raise awareness about these complex conditions. Visit bendybodiespodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories, so please tag us using hashtag bendybuddy. You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all with the ID HypermobilityMD. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. This is not intended to be a substitute for medical diagnosis or advice. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. The opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the hosts or any particular organization. Thank you for being a part of our community and we will catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.